Welcome to the Holistic Healing Project, a podcast that explores how we can optimize our health, support our body's natural ability to heal, and deepen our relationships to ourselves, each other, and the planet. I'm your host, Dr. Laura MacDonald, and each week I'll be bringing you conversations with a range of experts and thought leaders to empower and inspire you on your own journey of healing. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It's lovely to have you here. I hope you're having a good week so far. This week, I'm really excited to bring you a conversation with Professor David Nutt, who I'm sure many of you will already be familiar with. David is the chair of neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London, where he also heads up the Centre for Psychedelic Research alongside Robin Carhart-Harris. David is also the chair and founder of Drug Science, an independent UK-based drugs advisory committee. And previously, he was the chair of the UK Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. This is a fascinating conversation. We dive into the psychedelic renaissance, the previous war on drugs back in the 60s and its devastating consequences. And then we talk about the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, which is really exciting for the field of psychiatry and really humanity as a whole. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. As always, if you do, please just take a moment to subscribe, rate, review. That's all really helpful. And yeah, just the biggest thank you once again for being here, for listening, for being part of these conversations. I appreciate you all so much and I will be seeing you again very soon. Hi, David. Thank you so much for joining me for the podcast today. How are you doing? Well, I'm quite paradoxically quite enjoying being at home because I used, used to travel so much I'd forgotten how lovely my house was. It's, it's nice to be back. Yeah, oh, good. I'm pleased you're relatively enjoying lockdown at least. So I'm really excited to speak with you for so many reasons, but I think that we can all agree that COVID has been, you know, really difficult for so many people. I think we're yet to see the fallout of you know, job loss, poverty, and just so much, so much uncertainty, really. Mm. And that's on the background of already really a mental health crisis in the UK and the Mm. world. Mm -hmm. So I'm so pleased to see that there's actually some developments within psychiatry and neuroscience, because for so long, it's been a speciality that hasn't really seen much movement. You know, there's some good drugs around and talking therapy definitely has its place. And yet, for decades, there's just not been many developments. So the fact that psychedelics have come about, in my mind, they couldn't have come, you know, this research is so important at this time. And as someone who's at the forefront of it all, and for listeners who maybe are still a bit uncertain about psychedelics, maybe haven't come across the new research, would you just please start by explaining why this research is so important? Well, as you pointed out, we haven't had... uh any major breakthroughs in, in psychiatry for a very long time. For instance, in depression, all the treatments we've got until very, very recently with, uh, have been developed from drugs we discovered by serendipity in the 1950s. We've refined them and, and, and made them safer, much safer, but we haven't actually changed their mode of action. The only possible exception is ketamine, which was as an anaesthetic that has been sort of turned into a, a treatment for resistant depression in recent years. But we know that however well any of our treatments work, the significant proportion of people are left disadvantaged with depression. Antidepressants is at least at least half of people don't get into what we call remission. They don't get back to full functionality with the treatments we use. And uh, psychedelics seem to help 
people who haven't responded to uh, traditional antidepressants. And we've done uh, a study and a couple of uh, American groups have also done similar studies in different forms of depression. And they have shown that just that one or sometimes just two psychedelic experiences can, in a sense, reset the brain and help people achieve the kind of brain function, psychiatric function, mood flexibility and capabilities that they had before they got depressed. So it's been a kind of empirical discovery. Um, partly we've relearned what we've, people have tried to suppress from the, the evidence back in the 60s, the 50s and 60s where these drugs did have utility. But mostly it's been a, a new adventure, a new, a new exploration of, the, of their um, potential capabilities. Just to clarify for anyone listening, I know the word psychedelic is used... Um it seems to be used in different ways. So sometimes it encapsulates uh, quite a lot of drugs and other times it seems to just be a few. Would you mind clarifying what you term a psychedelic drug and which specific drugs? So when I'm talking about psychedelics, I'm talking about drugs which produce profound alterations in the sense of self. Psychedelic means mind revealing and psychedelic drugs that we would consider psychedelic are drugs like LSD or psilocybin or ayahuasca or DMT. And these are all... Uh, what we call agonists, they stimulate serotonin 5-HT2A receptors. There are 15 different serotonin receptors in the brain, but the 2A receptor is the one that is intimately involved in consciousness and the regulation of the sense of self. And so classical psychedelics stimulate that receptor to produce their effects. But of course, there's also been a lot of interest in gaining therapeutic utility from drugs, other drugs which have been illegal, particularly MDMA, now, MDMA is also it works on the serotonin system, but it is not a psychedelic, at least in low doses. But it does produce quite powerful alterations in brain function, which can be utilised to help, particularly help people deal with PTSD. So those are the two classes of drugs where there's been the most exciting new research. And of course, they're both illegal because they were used recreationally. And now we're trying to make them medicines again because they they both were medicines. And uh, we see it's been obvious it banning them didn't stop recreational use. What it did was stop research and and medical use. Yeah, it feels like we've had this huge hiatus of research in this area. And I know you've spoken before Mm -hmm. about the the war on drugs and how it was just, you know, the the most... It's a travesty, really, that it happened because it has prevented the research. Would you mind just going into that a little bit? No, absolutely. So the the war on drugs was uh, an American creation. It was created by the advisors of... um, Richard Nixon in 1967, when he was facing re-election. Things were going badly in Vietnam, so they had to create another war that they could win, or think thought they could win, in order to distract the uh, American voters from the chaos in Vietnam. So they decided to attack people who used drugs. And uh, it was purely a political stunt, but it was extraordinarily effective, because uh, Nixon won every state except Maine. And since then, the whole world has been fighting the war on drugs because America made it part of the UN charter, effectively. Britain followed suit. Every country and all the countries in the UN basically signed up to the war on drugs, which was attacking people who used drugs. Uh, And one of the the collateral damage to the war on drugs is not just the the millions of people who've died and the vast numbers of destabilizations of countries over the world and, and all the dishonesty and, and the corruption of police, etc. But one other collateral damage was research. Because in order to make these drugs, uh, the people who use these drugs, uh, victims or targets, they had to say the drugs were very dangerous and that the drugs had no medical value. 
And so they put them into what's called Schedule 1, which is a sort of the black hole. Drugs in Schedule 1 never get researched because they're too dangerous to research and they have no medical value. And for about 40 years, psychedelics, MDMA, even cannabis were put in Schedule 1. And we see that research interest virtually disappeared. Uh, and that was for two reasons. One is the regulations to get hold of a drug in Schedule 1 are so immensely complicated. It takes years to get through the bureaucracy that most people haven't got the time or the energy to do it. And secondly, governments won't fund research in that field. The American government specifically refused to fund anything that might justify these drugs having value. And since the American government is the largest funder of research in the world... There's very little research got done. A little bit's been done since with charities, but very few of the major funders are prepared to touch research with illegal drugs. Why? Because they say, well, you're just giving some sort of credence to recreation use, which is, of course, absurd, but uh, that's the way it's been. And I believe that the, the censorship of uh, these drugs is the worst censorship of research in the history of science. There's no example where, for 50 years, a major scientific inquiry around the whole world was stymied by these kind of regulations. Yeah, it makes you wonder how many lives have actually been lost through suicide or addiction um, as a result of not having access to these drugs sooner. That's a great question. So I've done a back-of-the-envelope calculation for alcohol, and most people don't realise that the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, had many psychedelic experiences. He overcame his alcoholism through a psychedelic vision. He gave Aldous Huxley LSD... He basically got the US government to fund six trials treating the LSD for alcoholism. And recent analysis has shown that if you do a meta-analysis, put together all the data from those six trials, you have an effect size of about one, which is bigger than any treatment before or since for alcoholism. But LSD has been denied alcoholics ever since 1967. And if you think, well... Probably in that time, at least, and this is a, an underestimate, certainly, but say 100 million people with alcohol problems in the world have been denied, denied access to a treatment, which could potentially have cured 10% of them. Well, that's 10 million premature deaths just from alcohol alone. And then there are all these other disorders like depression and uh, PTSD that they, it could help and other forms of addiction as well. So it's, a, it's an outrageous censorship. And it's, it's all been done for political reasons. It's all been done to allow people to say they're being tough on drugs, even though you don't need to be tough on those drugs. They're not addictive. <laughs> they're not used that much. People who use them recreationally don't go on rampages. They just tend to reflect a little bit on themselves and often come out being better people. So do you think that the propaganda was so powerful back in the 60s and 70s that that accounts for some of the, the huge lag time? Because it seems like there's actually uh, science now that suggests that yes these drugs are they can be used for so many conditions in the right set and setting in the right context and yet there still seems to be a real lag with the actual drug policy of governments especially in the UK obviously countries like Portugal Canada seem to be ahead of the game yeah I mean it's not just the UK I mean Australia's got even more a bizarre anti-psychedelic drug policy they don't even allow people to grow native plants in their garden if they make DMT but you're right many many sort of Puritan-based Western countries uh, have got extremely uh, oppressive drug laws against these drugs. And it, it's because the lies that were told were powerful. Darwin said, false facts are very injurious to science, for they endure long. And the point is, people have been lying about these drugs for so long that most people now think there must be some truth. Why, you know, it's no smoke without fire. Why would health professionals, and it's, it is health professionals, it's, it's organisations like the National Institute of Drug Abuse in the States, 
I've told people for 40 years, it's like Adele, it's a really dangerous drug. So, I mean, you know, they, they couldn't all be lying. You know, there's a sort of sense in which there must be some truth in it. So let's err on the side of caution and let's assume that they're going to be dangerous. Not doing a proper analysis of the risk benefits. And uh, this binarization of drugs, you know, is they're either you know, bad or good, is, is extremely, it's, it's very primitive, it's not scientific. And that's one of the things that I've been trying to do over the last well, 15 years with, with um, drug reform in Britain, and more recently we've done a similar thing in Australia, is to do a proper analysis of the different harms of drugs and, and, and eventually to do an analysis on the benefits as well. But when, even when you just do a harm analysis, psychedelics come out very low, way lower than tobacco and way, way lower than alcohol. So it's obvious, you know, when you start to do any kind of scientific inquiry that these drugs have been inappropriately vilified. But changing the law is very difficult because laws about politics and politicians get votes from people who actually quite, I think, quite like punishing drug users. So this is presumably why you went ahead and set up Drug Science, which is essentially your independent body that looks at the harm and benefits of drugs away from government, away from commercialisation as well, which is obviously something else that we're seeing now that... You know, things like cannabis and psychedelics are having a bit of a resurgence. There's that you get this kind of commercial then interest, this vested interest coming in that direction as well. So drug science enables you to study these substances in a very scientific way. Is that right? I set up drug science when I was sacked from the chair of the government's advisory council on the misuse of drugs. I worked for the government for 10 years, basically chairing the, the committee that looked at the harms of drugs. And it was absolutely clear after 10 years, the governments weren't remotely interested in telling the truth about harms. All they wanted was some evidence to justify their decisions. They'd made the political decisions and they wanted the scientists to say, well, that was okay for these reasons. And in the end, I just couldn't say that because it was just so obviously, the decision-making was so political. So we set up drug science to tell the truth about drugs. And, and our, we're a charity that's uh, supported by... Um, donors and also by some of the book on the shelf there you can see (laughs) the new one and um what's the book david i can't see it i can't see the title uh, it's called drugs without the hot air it's the second edition of drugs without hot air so all the proceeds of my book goes to support drug science and we've got research grants from um, charities as well but drug science tells the truth about drugs and it basically gives ammunition to anyone who wants to try to have a rational debate with their own friends, with their families, with their local politicians, or even with the national governments about the the harms of drugs. And one of the things we've been very successful at doing is is setting up this process called multi-criteria decision analysis to properly evaluate the harms of drugs. So when I first started working with the uh, Advisory Council back in 1999, I remember sitting in my first committee meeting and we were discussing ecstasy and I was saying, well, ecstasy is not, you know, I mean, ecstasy is just a slight, you know, a version of amphetamine, you know, it doesn't need to be class A, amphetamine is class B. And there were people stood there on the committee and they said, over my dead body, we will downgrade ecstasy from A to B in the, in the British classification system. And I thought, well, hang on a second. You know, that's, a, that's not exactly a scientific statement. And it was clearly, you know, it was just people got so emotional about ecstasy. People got really, really angry that young people should be having fun and that the odd one might possibly have died as from misusing it. But they were quite happy to carry on allowing advertising of alcohol. And in those days, you're going to still advertise cigarettes, I think. So we set up this system of really of properly calibrating the harms. And, and the first thing we did was we worked out how many harms there were. And it turns out there are 16 ways in which drugs can harm you. There are nine harms to the user, 
and there are seven harms to society. And the next thing we did then was to work out what the definitions of, and how to rate each harm was. And then the third thing we did was to do a proper analysis of, we did 20 drugs, some legal, some illegal, with these, scaling each of these on these 16 scales of harm, and, and that was a challenging thing to do, as you can imagine. And, uh, and then we had to weight each of the harms, what do we care most about, what don't we care about? And, uh, and it turned out that alcohol was the most harmful drug in Britain. And at that point, the world went mad, you know, because when I started saying that alcohol was more harmful than LSD, then, then I got sacked. I remember, I remember all of this because I was at um, Brighton and Sussex Medical School at the time. And I remember, I do remember this clearly. And yeah, it's, but it was interesting science that was coming out that was then quickly squashed. Well, yes, it's never been refuted, though. And it can't, I mean, it's irrefutable because, in fact, one of the things that fortunately happened, the European... Um, director of, of law actually gave us money to redo the British analysis uh, in Europe. And we, we had expert, 30 experts, 20 European countries. They changed every ranking of the, the 16 different uh, parameters of harm. They, they re-ranked our 20 drugs and they changed every ranking. They changed every weighting. And the result's exactly the same. And only one drug, literally only of the 20, only one drug shift places. I think GHB and ketamine just moved just you know, alternated their place. So it proved it was very robust. And then just two years ago, we did the same in Australia. We did the Australian Drug Harm Study, and that was published last year. And that was actually interesting because that, that showed not only that the process you know, was applicable in, in the Southern Hemisphere, but also that where it was sensitive to changes in drug use. So, for instance, in Australia, there's a gr much greater use of crystal meth. And interestingly, that was shown up, which crystal meth ended up being second to alcohol in Australia, whereas in Britain it had been fourth or fifth. So, so we've not only we validated it, and we've also shown it's sensitive to, to the real world, to the, to the impact of drugs on society. Mm. Isn't it fascinating that we're still drinking alcohol, though, and alcohol just is, it's not even thought about really as a drug. People just drink, mm. you know, in whatever way they are, whether it's social drinking or I appreciate there's obviously a spectrum and at the far end of the spectrum, obviously alcoholism. But the science is there that shows how bad it is for us. And, you know, liver disease, how many people are dying from alcoholic liver disease? Absolutely. It's baffling. Yeah. It's absolutely baffling when you speak to, to just try and get your head around the fact that that is a legal drug that you can go into a shop and buy. And yet other drugs which are proven to have less harm and potentially even really help people with certain conditions are illegal. Exactly. There aren't many treat, there aren't many conditions you treat with alcohol, are there? It doesn't have a lot of medical... No. <laughs> In fact, I think there are only two, but anyway, we won't go there. Um, and they're not very, you know, the alternative. So um, the position of alcohol shows something really important, that decision-making isn't scientific. Until I was sacked, we weren't... They, I got sacked for arguing that alcohol was a drug. Up to that point, all my predecessors had sort of pretended it wasn't and said we couldn't consider that. And, I said, and in the end, I said, no, you've got to consider it. Of course, it's a drug. You know, it's absurd to say it's not a drug. So I got sick. But now, you know, there is a sort of beginning of a debate about, you know, the fact that alcohol is really a drug and what to do about it. But over the last hundred years, the drinks industry has been extraordinarily effective at, at spreading information that undermines people's fears about alcohol. And, of course, you know, misinforms them about its potential value. It's the opposite of the psychedelics. Psychedelics have been vilified for 50 years and people think, well, they must be dangerous. Alcohol has been celebrated for, for 100 years and people think, well, it can't be all that bad, even though it killed my, you know, my father and my, my, my husband's beating me up because he's drunk all the time. But, you know, when it, overall alcohol is okay. We're completely blinkered to the harms of alcohol in most Western societies. 
So it sounds like you've just had the biggest job. You've been pushing a boulder up a hill for the last few decades, really, in terms of both alcohol, trying to wake people up to alcohol, and then on the other hand, also wake people up to the benefit, of, potential benefit of psychedelics. So I just applaud you for keeping yeah. going and just seeking truth, really, truth through mm. science. Well, the good news is that the boulder's still going up the hill. As a form. <laughs> Great. I'm pushing. <laughs> well, let's talk, let's talk pushing. about that. Let's talk about where you are, because... I know um, the Centre for Psychedelic, is it called the Centre for Psychedelic Research at yes, Imperial? Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. So when, when did that open? That opened last year, yeah. My ex-PhD student and, you know, my colleague now, uh, Robin Carhart-Harris, uh, went to America, talked to a rich people and got quite a lot of funding to set up a centre, which was, which was very, you know, actually very satisfying. That, uh, again, you know, it's all, it's all philanthropy. It's not, there's no money from government or Imperial, but at least, you know, he's got some funding for the next few years to to do some serious research. And the research, the findings that I've been reading about, it just sounds amazing. And I also watched um, Magic Medicine, the documentary, which I know followed the first trial, well, some of the participants. So I'd love for you to just explain to listeners um, about the research you've been doing, specifically first with psilocybin would be great. Yeah, so I'll just go back before we talk about depression. I I think it's important that people understand... um, when we started working with psychedelics, our interest, we didn't expect them to have particular therapeutic value. We, we kind of knew about the past, but but we didn't really know that much about it. You know, we, we, we didn't set out to find a new treatment for depression. What we set out to do was find out what these drugs did in the brain because they clearly produced powerful alterations in consciousness. And it was a really important question. No one has ever studied the effects in the brain, really. Why? Because they're illegal, because you couldn't get funding. In reality, the, they produce more interesting effects in the brain than any other drug. It, it, it did seem timely to study it. So we, did, we started off doing brain imaging studies with psilocybin. Psilocybin is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. We started working with that for a number of reasons. Um, a lot of people don't know about it. It doesn't have the sort of hysteria attached to it, like LSD. And also it doesn't last as long as LSD. So it's, you can do an experiment in an afternoon and people can go home. The trip is over by the you know the evening. So it's much easier to work with, much more contained kind of uh, experience. And most importantly, no politician knows how to spell psilocybin or even say it. So, so they can't attack you very easily because they kind of make fools of themselves. So we thought, let's do, let's take psilocybin. And, and this was working with a charity called the Beckley Foundation. Uh, Amanda Fielding, who's been a pioneer of the psychedelic renaissance, really. And uh, so we did this study. We did this brain imaging study using uh, fMRI. And uh, to our amazement, you know, the effects on the brain were exactly the opposite of what we predicted. We we assumed that when people were having lots of pretty coloured lights swirling through their their vision, that they, you know, the visual cortex would be active. We thought when they, when people have this sense of ego dissolution and people floating out of the scanner and, and becoming one with God, you know, that would be some activation of of networks which relate to sense of self. But we, we saw no ac- increased activity. The brain didn't turn on. Leary was wrong. You don't turn, it doesn't turn on the brain. Uh, it actually turns off parts of the brain. And we were baffled by this. And so we went back and did another experiment using a different form of, uh, of fMRI called BOLD. Got the same results. And then we realised that actually we discovered something really quite important, that psychedelics are turning off a circuit of the brain, a network. And that network is the control network. It's the network that actually makes your brain do what it's been trained to do, which is what you've been taught to do, what you've learned to do, what you expected to do. And that's called the default mode network. And that's where your sense of self is. And, and that's, just sort of, that's where you are, really. If you 
destroy the damage the default mode network. And we know this from people who've had traumatic brain injuries. You become a different person. And then we realized, because there was a French group at the same time looking at the default mode in depression, and we thought they'd shown that in depression there's too much default mode. Depression is a disorder where people's default mode, their sense of self, becomes over-engaged, and, they, and that is why they ruminate too much and why they get locked into these negative thoughts all the time. So we put two and together. We said, well, hang on, we're disrupting the default mode, and depression's got too much default mode. Maybe psilocybin would disrupt depression, depressive thinking. So we wrote a grant. I mean, and actually, that was in 2012. Uh, uh, it's the only grant we've ever gotten from government or any big charity to do this research. But at the time, and as it still is now, depression was a major problem. No one, there weren't very much in the way of innovative new treatments. And we got funded. Uh, that was easy, but getting the trial done was so difficult because the drug was illegal. It took us a year. I had to go to ethics three times to get permission to do this. And in the end, they wouldn't let me do a trial. They said it was too dangerous. We had to do a safety study. We had to give it psilocybin to depressed people and to 12 depressed people, follow them up for six months, and then if none of them died, we could do a properly controlled trial. And in the end, ethics committees have so much power, we couldn't. We had to say yes. Uh, but that was, they did allow us to measure mood, obviously. We'd have to make sure people didn't get more depressed, etc. So, so the mood outcome was actually a secondary outcome to the safety of that trial. But that was easy, but that was a year. It took two years to get the drug because it had to be made in another country. There's only one place in the world it would make it to the standards we could use. We had to negotiate with our regulators that we could import it. We had to get import license. I mean, the whole thing. And took another year to get the drug and then another two months to get it. So it took 32 months, actually, out of a 36-month grant to actually start the trial. And that was really just to find out whether there was it was safe exactly. initially. And was it, was it safe? Was there any problems? It was extraordinarily safe. It was safe, but it was also very effective. So we, uh, we've, we gave it to 12 people. We gave them a, ty- a small dose to make sure it was really safe. And then no one went crazy on a 10 milligram dose. We gave them a 25 milligram dose. Almost all of them had a, a, uh, an experience, a trip, often very challenging, difficult, profound. But everyone got a bit better. And some people got completely better. There were people who were kind of cured of their depression by a week. And one or two are still completely cured today. It's like they've reset their brain and they're no longer depressed. Mm. I think that's what was really good about the Mind uh, Magic Medicine documentary as well. It it didn't just suggest that it was a panacea for depression. It showed that actually not everybody went into remission, but that no, you know no. some people did, and maybe yeah. some went into you know a better state of mind for three months or so. Which I thought was a really good overview of the way it works, rather than because yeah. there's almost a bit of a danger with the psychedelics at the moment. I think. There's a lot of media hype, isn't there? And, and you don't want to kind of overstate their potential Not as well. Time, I don't no, know what you no. think about that. No, absolutely. I think, I mean, basically about a third of people got way better and, and probably about 20% have stayed really, really well. It's as if they've, they've um, well, their mind has changed, their attitude has changed. They've kind of resolved whatever it was was causing their depression. Uh, about a third got a bit better, but then slipped back. And then that gap in between, sort of, you know, forty percent. They did well for quite some time, and then the depression gradually sort of come, came back and and and, over, and began to overwhelm them. And that's the saddest thing of all, though, because those people now we can't treat them again, because I'm only allowed to give psilocybin in the context of a clinical trial, and uh, unless they go to other countries to get their treatment, we can't treat them. And and, and you know, as you saw, the, the the man from the borders of Scotland, you know, he was in a, he did so well. 
And then he slipped back to where he was, and his wife was saying, "I'm not even. I now think I regret, almost regret him get being better because now I know he can be better. I'm very resentful of the fact." Yeah, that was tragic. And when they were speaking to his children, saying, "You know, yeah. we got dad back for a while," yeah, exactly. and to just think that if only he could have more access to that treatment. I don't know. You know, maybe every three months or something. I don't know. That's but... how I envisage it. I think magic medicine was actually it was even more important as a film showing the impact of depression on people it was more important almost than the the fact that psychedelics work because a lot of people don't realize how damaging and a lot of politicians don't really they're they're, Mm. depression that's just what wimps get or you know i've been depressed i'm depressed every monday morning you know but but the reality is real depression is is a disorder that destroys you and it destroys your family too no, it definitely showed that. So that's why psychedelics, you know, and psilocybin, the work that you're doing is so, so important. Um, it, it appeared that the participants all had psychotherapy as a part of it. It seemed like there was a real workup before the um, journey and then obviously afterwards an integration period. Is that something that you, you think is really important as part of it? You can't just, you know, not that people would do this, but be at home taking psilocybin on your own and expect it to have an effect. I think well, it's, a, it's a really fundamental question, and, and, and we some people take it even further. You know, <laughs> some people want to know whether it's a drug effect, or whether it's just placebo, or whether it's a drug of or just psychotherapy. And my view is it, it, it's it's bound to be both. How can it not be both? I mean, <laughs> but there's going there's almost it's almost it's impossible for for the, the psychological experience not to have have some meaning as well as the biological experience. And that people have said, well, why don't you anaesthetize people and give them psychedelics while they're anaesthetized and see if that lifts their depression? Now that is a really the great. Of that. That be, <laughs> it's a great scientific question. Yeah, is it ethical? I don't think so. Why would you? You know, I'm interested in getting people better and. Every all the history of psychiatry tells us that if you're going to use drugs, particularly to get people better, not necessarily to keep them better, but to get them better, it's always good to do psychotherapy as well. And so we call this psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. And actually, we didn't do a lot of psychotherapy. We, we I think the area for enhancement in in the future would be some more psychotherapy because bottom line was our patients um, they'd all had CBT by the way. They'd also they'd all they'd failed on conventional psychotherapy, which. Uh, and many of them didn't like it because it was kind of almost blaming them for not thinking right for their depression. And they, um, so, what we don't do CBT. Well, our psychotherapy is, is much more about trying to understand the meaning of the experience. But all they got was they got, they, they met with the guides, the two therapists, usually a, a psychiatrist, psychologist, a day before they had the trip, and were told what was good, was likely to happen. Then they, during the trip, they're allowed to talk. Mostly they don't want to talk. Mostly they just go with it and disappear into where, whichever yeah, universe or experience or memory they want to go into. And the music's a really important part of that, isn't it? I know you have a particular... Yeah, there's music. I mean, music, we haven't optimised music. I mean, we believe music is important. We, haven't, we didn't personalise the music in that first trial. and that, We think we could certainly improve on that if you get people's tracks in it that they want. I mean, we made we made tracks which were emotionally engaging and maybe even emotionally provoking, and some people found maybe they were a bit too emotional. But, but music can be a very... You know, it, is a, it is a facilitator of change as well in, in um, psychedelics. But the next day, it was, you know, they had a, a meeting for maybe a couple of hours with the guides, and they talked through the experience. And we weren't able... We didn't have the funding to do really any further integration systems, sessions, although some of the patients sort of met online or even in person to try to um, work as a group to improve that. So I think there's scope for having more um, more integration and also possibly more sessions. So in our current trial, which is nearly finished now, 
we are comparing two doses of psilocybin, 25 milligrams, three weeks apart, with the gold standard um, SSRI called escitalopram at a, a dose of 20 milligrams over six weeks, or 10 milligrams for three weeks, and then 20 for six. So a good dose, a proper dose. And um, we think that perhaps two doses of psychedelics might actually give you a more enduring benefit than um, just the one dose. Uh, but again, we're not doing a lot of psychotherapy. We don't have the resources. In, um, I think in the real, you know, in the ideal world, we, the, we people would have a full psychotherapeutic experience as well, you know, over, say, say, five to eight weeks, as well as the trip. So it seems that there's a real momentum here and the result, results are so promising. How long, I mean, this, how long is a piece of string, but how long do you think it's going to be until people are able to access psilocybin through the NHS? Hmm. <laughs> well, the, the big, f- my big fear is we will, it'll go down the same path as ketamine. So this new version, the enantiomer of ketamine called S-ketamine has been launched. It's been launched in the States. It's now been launched in Britain. But NICE, our National Institute of Clinical Excellence, or whatever it's called now, says it's too expensive. And uh, I, I really do worry that uh, when we get psychedelic therapy approved, uh, that people will say it's too expensive for the NHS. Now, you know, we have to do, and we are looking at ways of, uh, of minimising the cost but you're competing with very, very inexpensive drugs. I mean, if you, you know, the reality is uh, a treatment with psilocybin is going to cost thousands of pounds because of the doctors and the hospital sitting, etc. Whereas an SSRI, it costs a pound a month. <laughs> so the NHS is cut back and cut back, so that so the cost pressures may make it rather difficult. So, and that would be very sad because I would, you know, it would seem completely unreasonable that psychedelic medicine could only be available to, to people who are rich or got private insurance. So we do have to look at how best to, to make it available. Maybe we don't need two therapists, maybe just one therapist. That, that could work. Maybe some people are talking about doing it in groups. Historically, of course, the, the historic use of uh, particularly ayahuasca in, in places like Brazil and Peru, in, in, in a sort of um, native traditional use, that's been done in group therapy. So it, there are group therapies using ayahuasca, f- particularly for veterans, for military veterans. And there's some interesting films. There's a, a very good film you should watch called uh, From Shock to Awe, which is a parody on the, uh, the, the George Bush uh, assault on uh, Iraq, which is actually looking at veterans from Iraq going and um, getting over their shock, their trauma, uh, by using psilocybin, or ayahuasca in this case, or you, you potentially could use psilocybin. I mean, there are, the, the other thing is that, of course, the mushrooms remained legal in the Netherlands, or at least the truffles, the underground bits, which also contain the, the, the psilocybin. So there is the development of what you might sort of medical parapsychiatric therapy in the Netherlands. Um, uh, and some of the therapists there are getting quite well trained, so that might be a less expensive alternative. I actually attended one of those retreats ah, you mentioned about right. in the Netherlands back in October. Uh-huh. And I was so impressed with the whole, it was a four-day retreat yeah. and I was just so impressed with how it was run and it really was um, a kind of retreat build-up with lots of practices like breath work and sharing circles and spending yeah. lots of time in nature yeah. and body yeah. work. You know, it, it wasn't yeah. just going there to to take this medicine. And like you mentioned, it was the truffles rather than the um, the mushrooms. 
But yeah, the, the facilitators there were wonderful and the journey was really powerful. And then obviously you have a few days of integration, which I think is vital, really. But doing it in the group setting, I thought worked really well because mm. there's something about sharing circles and ceremony. I guess it, it's a bit of a, it's a respect to the cultures that have historically um, used these medicines. Well, that's also true, yes. I mean, that's, you know, learning from history is you know, quite important. We've tended, you know, Western society tends to assume there's nothing to learn from history, but there is, <laughs> there's a lot of mistakes to learn from history and there's also some positives. Uh, but mm. I'm interested in, in what you say there. I mean, I'm kind of coming to the view now that maybe, maybe use, seeing psychedelics as a kind of last resort for depression is, is a rather limited uh, perspective. It may be that... Maybe by using the kind of mushroom or ayahuasca retreats that you mentioned before, or in the maybe even you know before you even get depressed, or maybe in the early stages, could help you protect you against depression. Maybe you can get some kind of psychic wellness, some insights, which actually make you more resilient. And I think that would be a really interesting thing. I mean, impossibly difficult to research, but potentially hugely important. And presumably there'll be a lot of pushback uh, from government um, with, in that area because obviously I think you're almost talking about human flourishing and consciousness and, and healing and actually maybe it's too close to the counterculture of the 60s or something. I don't, I don't know. I've taken the view that the best way I can contribute to this, this uh, development is through using my experience as a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist and trying to trying to understand mechanisms and also apply them, uh, as one always, almost always does with any new intervention in people who are most ill. But it may be, and, and you know, we have to think more about resilience. I just want to sh- I'll share an anecdote with you, which made me think a bit of... Well, I'll tell you two anecdotes. The first is that uh, Hoffman, who discovered LSD, lived to 102. Joel Elkies, Joel Elkies, professor of experimental psychiatry at University of Birmingham, 1953, was the first British person to take LSD and he lived to 103 and you're thinking hang on a sec this, this drug's frying the brain it's obviously frying the bad bits or the good bits <laughs> and I was I gave a lecture a few months you know about four years ago to a psychiatrist in, in London and this old psychiatrist came up to me he's in his 80s now and he said you know, it's interesting do you, know, do you think do you think these psychedelics might sort of uh, have some benefit in terms of you know Reducing aging, and I said, "Well, you know, theoretically they could. They're anti-inflammatory. You know, maybe they they help protect you against some of the other changes in the brain." He said, mm-hmm. "I wonder why I was doing so well." <laughs> <laughs> Is there any evidence that they help um, with things like Alzheimer's, reducing that, like neurodegenerative conditions? Well, that's kind of what. Yeah, the answer is there's no evidence now, but right. there are theoretical possibilities. Yeah, I mean, mm. people. Actually, a trial was done. It's not yet been published. A trial was done. Um, of a sort of mini dose of LSD, I think 10 micrograms, um, or was it 25, I don't remember. I wasn't part of the trial, but it was done to elderly people over a few, they gave it, I think, you know, maybe once or twice a week for about four weeks. And it didn't improve cognition. But what was, what was interesting is that the one thing that did, they, they seemed happier. People said, well, you know, the, the old people, they were singing more and more, you know, just generally seemed better in themselves. So, so it, could, it could potentially have moved benefit effect, beneficial effect. There is a lot of interest in, in the 5-HC2A receptor as a target for, to reduce inflammation in the brain. And, you know, if Alzheimer's in part is obviously an inflammatory disorder, so potentially you could, these drugs at sub-psychedelic doses might be useful. 
And when people get very old, the, the receptor seems to not be so powerful in the sense that stimulation doesn't seem to have such a big effect. So, I'm really interested in this area because obviously I've got a history of stage four cancer. And yes. I know there was amazing studies done at John Hopkins back yeah. in, was it 2014, 2016, looking at end-of-life yeah. patients yes. and their anxiety and yes. using psilocybin. And yes. the results were so powerful. Yeah. And I just wonder, do you think this is something that's going to be able to come into palliative care at some point because the fact that... I do hope so. Oh, I really hope so. And the fact it's not happened already, um, yeah, it just infuriates me really because to give someone at the end of their life an experience like that, I just think it'd be so helpful. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you raised this. I mean, I remember my first year at medical school, so we're talking 72, the drugs had just been banned and I was complaining to a professor of clinical pharmacology saying, why... You know why? Why have they banned LSD? Why? You know this this drug has seems to me from my reading, utility in helping people come to terms with dying. And he said, oh, "I don't understand anything about that. You know, go away, nut." <laughs> and obviously, just you know, my reputation continues ever since. <laughs> go away, nut. Um, so it was known. It was you know. I mean, you know, Aldous Huxley died peacefully having been given an injection of LSD by his wife. So, you know, the, it was well known that psychedelics help people come to terms with uh, end of life. And why is that? Because it helps people understand what life is more and they understand concepts like, you know, eternity and the fact that, you know, you're, what are we? What are we as humans? We're a collection of molecules. Those molecules, or sorry, the atoms that make up those molecules have been around since the Big Bang, you know. So there's 12 billion years of history in all of us. And, and when we die, you know, our molecules still exist. So we, we, know, we never disappear. We just reform somehow. And, and psychedelics help people come to terms with that. There's no doubt about that. They feel much more in tune with the bigger world, nature, the universe, etc. So why aren't we using them? Well, we're not using them again because, you know, they're illegal and you know, who knows, you give it to people who are dying, well, they might get addicted to it, mightn't they? You know, I mean, it's an absurdity, but but that's another one of the uh, the unexpected and unintended consequences of banning them. But the trials that were done, there were two controlled trials, one from New York University, Steve Ross, and one from John Hopkins and Roland Griffiths, and they both showed that people confronting the possibility of dying get benefit from psychedelics, psilocybin. So, again, it, to, deny, to deny them to... It's, it's just... It's perverse. It's actually evil. I mean, it's cruel. But to have that debate is proving challenging. But I get maybe someone like you who's actually been through it, and and uh, you may get more notice than people like me. You know, who they, they think I'm just a crazy drunk campaigner. Yeah, because I had these deep experiences, like you've mentioned, um, yeah. which, of course, I you know, will, I think any stage four cancer patient will always be slightly worried the cancer is going to come back. And um, yes, I think course. we're all scared of death. We just don't really give it much airtime normally. We deny no, that we're going no. to die. Um, and yeah. yet, obviously, when you're faced with your mortality, you, of course, experience that. It's so close. Um, but I definitely feel a much calmer, more accepting state when I talk about death, when I think about dying. And that's definitely from that experience, um, 100%. Well, and I just wish need, more people Can you write? Could have you written about it? it? I actually recorded... I a podcast with Stefana Boss. It was one of my earlier podcasts on here. Right. Um, she was one of the facilitators and we talked about it then. But yeah, it's something I need to definitely follow up because this is really where, where my passion is. Well, I'll tell you why it's important, actually. You, you may not know this, but both in the UK and in Australia, there's a strong push to make psilocybin a Schedule II drug, a legal drug, a medical drug, not recreationally, but... 
And a lot of the narrative is around depression. And the end-of-life narrative actually hasn't been properly incorporated into the discussions. And if you were to write something that we could reference... I mean, obviously, we can reference the, 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 the two papers from John Hopkins, but the personal narratives have so much more impact. You know, people say, oh, trials, well, it's only a 15% difference, you know, it's all statistical error, blah, blah, blah. But someone like you who, who's actually been there and actually looked over the precipice and, and, and realised how horrible threatening death is and now have come to a better understanding of it. One of the things drug science did I haven't talked about yet is we set up a, a journal called Drug Science, Policy and Law. It's a place where these various different uh, themes can be brought together. And if you want to write a personal narrative, we'll publish it because it's... It, it, I don't know that there are many out there that, that would help us and yours would. No, I'd love to do that. Thank you. Can we just pivot a little bit? I'd love to know what your view is on microdosing because I know yeah, that's sure. something that's in the media a lot and people yeah. in, say, Silicon Valley are talking about it. What do you think? Is there any evidence for microdosing? Well, we, we did write the definitive review uh, a few months ago. Okay, great. 11-point <laughs> uh, review on microdosing. And the answer is um, microdosing is an interesting construct. There is no doubt it could work. It's theoretically possible it could work. But there's no evidence it works as yet. Okay, there we go. No evidence at the moment anyway. Slightly um, moving into a different substance now, so cannabis. I know in 2018 it was finally legalised for medical use, so doctors could prescribe it. But it seems that in the UK there's been a, although it's available, actually patients haven't been able to access it easily or I don't know, I'm just hearing that it's not really being used maybe as much as it could could be. Is that correct? It's hardly been used at all. There are, like, I think in the last count, 12 prescriptions on the NHS in 18 months is outrageous and it's despicable and it's it's a it's and why, why is that then well it's actually because the NHS is quite bureaucratic and to get a new medicine approved for a patient in the NHS requires you going through a, a series of steps it's a bit like being in a Kafka play you know, there are multiple bureaucrats in different rooms that are all making decisions um, that without any need to tell you why they've made the decisions. And so doctors don't know how to prescribe. Many doctors don't want to prescribe because they've been told there's no evidence, even though there's loads of evidence. Even the chief medical officer said there was evidence, and then doctors said, no, we don't believe the chief medical officer. Because prescribing, the government made it difficult to prescribe because they put it into a specials category, its own special specials category, which meant you had to have a special licence and a special pink pad to prescribe cannabis can only be prescribed by specialists so um, gps or the people that most likely to use it can't use it and then in hot then you have to go and every, every doctor in the nhs is constrained by a prescribers committee and pharmacists don't want to increase costs and the costs of costs of cannabis are expensive because of all the bureaucracy so you know in the same way as it costs i didn't mention this earlier on but each one of our doses of psilocybin in our trials cost £1,500 just to deal with the bureaucracy. I had to get a special safe screwed to the floor and screwed to the wall with a camera to store my psilocybin. You said to the Home Office, well, look, I've got down the corridor... <laughs> You've got to and, laugh at the ridiculousness uh, of it, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I'll cry, yeah. Down the corridor, I've got my heroin. I give heroin to heroin addicts. So I got heroin in in a, in a pharmacy in the in the in the pharma in a, in a free, of course, you know, yeah, we use that pharmacy. all the time, is doctor. Why can't I do that? Ah, oh, no, no, yeah. no. It's class, schedule one drug, class A drug. Well, it's, yeah, but you know, it's much less. Anyone's going to break in. They're going to take the heroin. They're not going to take the side. Oh no, no. So we, you know, we've created this 
bureaucracy. And the same thing with cannabis now. So, so the, the reality is... The irony is it, with all of these is that, of course, they're naturally occurring plants that yeah. actually just grow from the ground for free in certain places. Well, that's right. Absolutely. And, and, uh, but, and what's, of course, the regulations against cannabis mean that a million people are using illegal cannabis and, and they don't know what it is. They don't have, you know, some are growing it themselves, but not many. Most people are going to the black market. They're being, they're getting cannabis, which is the wrong cannabis for them. And they're also being offered other drugs like, you know, like crack and heroin. So what's your thought on, because um, I'm just look, looking at this whole situation, you know, we've got people still using drugs. We've got actually re- reduction in um, funding drug addiction services, yeah, which is yeah. a huge problem. Yeah. Um, it, the whole war on drugs, it doesn't seem, seem to have worked. People are still taking drugs mm-hmm, and and yet not having the support maybe they need, um, not having it in the right way. There's obviously a, a question of then criminality as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are we at a point now where you think that it should at least... Well, maybe not all drugs, because I appreciate, you know, we can be talking about heroin, you know, there's lots of, lots of different drugs, yes. but a certain drugs should at least be decriminalised. Um, and I appreciate there's a difference between being decriminalised and actually legalised, isn't there? Almost all the United Nations uh, organisations now have supported the decriminalisation of all drugs for personal possession. And that's really important. I mean, the the UNODC, the UN Office of Drugs and Crime, hasn't supported that, but every other UN organization, UNICEF, UNESCO, so they've all said people who use drugs shouldn't be treated as criminals because that just destroys their lives and also destroys the community. The, the war on them actually then has collateral damage, like, you know, 300,000 Mexicans dying last year. Okay, so everyone now agrees that criminalizing personal drug use is pointless. Even... We haven't quite got that to, to get that understood in Britain. We, our prison population has doubled in the last 40 years and it's all been people in prison for drug crimes. And it's completely pointless and stupid because in prison they usually take more dangerous drugs. But anyway, so decriminalisation for personal use is what uh, Portugal did. And it transformed, absolutely transformed drug use in their country. It, it reduced drug use. People say, well, how can that be? There's no there's sanctions. And the point is... Criminalizing drug users just creates a black market. In Portugal, if you're caught with heroin, you go into a treatment program, so you don't have to deal heroin and get other people addicted to support your habit. In Britain, you know, the user-dealer has got to have about 25 users to support their habit. So decriminalization of personal possession is unquestionably the right way forward. In the 16 years since they decriminalized personal possession in um, Portugal, heroin deaths fell to one-third of what they were 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And in Britain, they went up almost twice. We've almost doubled deaths because we don't we treat addiction as a crime, not as an illness, and that's absolutely ridiculous. So, so we should do that. I would go further. I would go uh, and say for any drug which is less harmful to the user than alcohol, and that's the majority of drugs, not all, but the majority... There should be some kind of regulated market. We have those regulated markets. We call them pharmacies. And I think we should be able to create a model of drug distribution of safe drugs, relatively safe drugs, through pharmacies, using some kind of smart card so you can perhaps limit the number of doses the person gets a year, etc. So drugs less harmful than alcohol should be made available in some regulated fashion. And alcohol should be somewhat more regulated, probably through price and, uh, and timing of availability. Yeah, really interesting. And I think it would go some way as well if that happened to 
preventing these drugs only being available maybe in private clinics because that's another way that it could go isn't it if if lots of drugs start just only being available on prescription through private clinics is that like you said earlier yes only certain people are able to afford them and it actually it's just so sad that the people who really really need access to these um, medicine really a lot of these drugs are medicine like we've been talking about psychedelics would be prevented from accessing them this is the paradox isn't it that the uh, the the people that need them uh, are the most disadvantaged therefore they're least able to afford them yeah Mm. yeah David, I watched a brilliant um, Netflix film that I just want to tell you about. It's a documentary called 13th. Have you heard of it? No, tell me. I watched it last night and it just reminded me when you were talking about the fact that criminalisation, um, so many people are in prison for possession of drugs and it was showing that, um, I think it, they said one in three um, black men in America is actually in prison or will be in prison during their lifetime. In their lifetime. Quite often drug-related. Mm-hmm. And um, they actually, they spoke beautifully about the war on drugs and how it's got a lot to answer for in terms of um, mass incarceration. But it was all mm-hmm. in the States, but it was really, yeah, really interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to mention that. When is we that a new film? It isn't. I think it's 2017, but Uh with all the Black Lives Matter, um, everything that's going on at the moment, it's it's back on Netflix, I think. I just want to say the biggest thank you to you for really blazing a trail in this renaissance i know you're you're working so hard and it you know when you talk about it you're up against decades of stigma and propaganda against these substances so i can't imagine how difficult it must be but i'm so pleased there seems to be some light at the end of the tunnel and i'm just so excited for what the future holds i'm excited for your generation absolutely i think um you know you it should be a lot better for you but the history of medicine is littered with people campaigning for rights and initially being vilified and i I mean my hero is samuel so here's the man that discovers that doctors are not very good at keeping mothers alive and childbirth whereas midwives are and this is in, in Budapest in sort of the 18, early 1800s. And then he, he says, well, what's the difference between how the midwife delivery ward and the doctor delivery ward? Well, the midwife delivery ward, midwives wash their hands and have hot water and they wash the mothers and they have clean sheets in that. But the doctors, the doctors walk in from the mortuary and deliver babies without any cleanliness at all. Now, this was the day, before, you know, we didn't know about bacteria, let alone viruses. And he said, there's something the doctors are doing wrong. And the doctors turned on him. And eventually committed suicide. But he was right. History proved him right. And now there's a university named after him in Budapest. So the fact is the medical profession is often one of the most reactionary and difficult professions. And, and they're like a super tanker. It can take them a couple of decades or generations to turn. But eventually when they turn, they won't turn back. So yeah. I'm going to hand over the baton to you now, Laura. Oh, bless you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I just really, really appreciate it. Hey, and come and see us when you're back in England. Come and see Drug I will, Science. definitely. I would absolutely love right. to do that, definitely. Um, David, for anyone who wants to connect with you, I know you've got a podcast called The Drug Science Podcast, so I just want to mention that. Is there any other ways people can connect with you? Or is yes, it just please. They can of... follow me on Twitter and direct message me. They can follow Drug Science on Twitter too. Okay. And for anyone who's been listening who has maybe been interested in the trials we've been talking about, I know some people maybe will have depression, will just be interested in finding out more. Is there ways people can apply to get onto the trials or is it very much through their own GPs or psychiatrists? Right. So that's a very important point. So our depression trials closed. Um, We will be setting up an OCD and an anorexia trial in the not too distant future. So they can email me, d.nut 
at imperial.ac.uk and we we can put them on the waiting list. I can't guarantee they'll get into the trial, but we can certainly acknowledge their interest. The depression trials are carrying on and in Britain the depression trials are taking place at King's College, that's Dr Rucker, at Bristol, Dr Williams, uh, at Manchester, uh, Dr Talbot, uh, and in Newcastle, Dr. McAllister Williams. So there are four centres for the psychedelic, the psilocybin trial, the Compass trial. So if you're inter- if you've got depression and you're interested in being part of those trials, then probably the best thing to do is go on the Compass website, Compass Pathways website, and and um, you can register your interest there or contact get your doctors to contact one of those other doctors there. Okay, that's wonderful. Thank you. I'm sure that'll be really helpful for many, many people. And just what a helpful conversation. Thank you so much for your time. It's been lovely to chat with you. Well, look, when it's coming out, let me know uh, and I'll tweet it. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much, David. Thank you ever so much for listening to our conversation today. I really hope you enjoyed it. And as always, if you did, please take a moment to rate and review. And if you'd like to connect, head on over to the Holistic Healing Project Instagram or my website, which is Dr. Lauren MacDonald. And I really look forward to connecting with you in the future. Please remember that whilst I am a qualified medical doctor, I am not your medical doctor. So whilst we often talk about health and well-being and we give out tools and tips and sometimes discuss topics that are a little bit fringe or alternative, this is very much for information only. It is not individual medical advice. So please, if you have any health concerns, make sure you go and see your own practitioner.